0: Hello and welcome. This is Pastor James from The Essentials. This is a space for us to talk about faith, to talk about life, and to celebrate the hope that we find through it all. So as you're listening to a podcast from a Moravian pastor, that's what I am, I figured that it would be beneficial to tell you a little bit more about what in the world a Moravian is. Because unless you are a Moravian, which shout out to any Moravians who are listening, or unless you live in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, the Lehigh Valley area, or you live in Winston Salem, North Carolina, if you're not in those two general areas, there's a pretty strong chance that you have never heard of a Moravian before. We are scattered across the country. We're scattered actually across the world. We have several local congregations, your classic brick-and-mortar church and sanctuary. Congregations run in size from a few dozen people on the smaller side to several hundred on the bigger side. And for the worldwide church, there are Uh, Plenty of Moravians here in the United States, but really uh, the most Moravians that you'd find would be in South Africa. That's where uh, Moravians really took hold and have uh, quite a large uh, group right now. But with all of these churches around the world, around this country, uh, something that's important to note is that the Moravian church is only separated geographically. We aren't different denominations. We aren't different churches or organizations. We're separated by our location, but we remain one church. It's called the Moravian Unity. And the worldwide church gets together for synods and meetings once every seven years. And then on a schedule of every four years, we get together based on our province in the United States. We have a northern and a southern province. And the northern province is also split into an eastern, a western, and a Canadian district as well. But with all of those different churches in different places, we remain one church. Which I think is pretty incredible that for many denominations who have split and started subsections of their own church, the Moravians haven't done that. We have remained one unified church. So I thought I'd tell you a little bit about kind of the setting that I serve in, the church and the congregation where I am a pastor of, because I think it's pretty similar in terms of what a typical Moravian pastor might experience or might be responsible for. And then we'll zoom out a little bit more and tell you where Moravians came from, where we draw our roots, and how we are in ministry today. So, as I mentioned before, we have several local congregations. That's kind of the classic Moravian church. That's the type of church I serve. We're in rural Wisconsin, kind of sandwiched between the city of Green Bay and the city of Appleton. But we are very much out in the country. We are between cornfields, we are out in the sticks for our congregation. And our community is a farming one. The church goes back. Uh, Over 150 years, families have gone to this church for generations after generations. We have about 150 members right now. So in worship, you'll see somewhere between 40 and 60 people in person, along with another 20 people who worship online. And a lot of Moravian churches are that way. A couple hundred people serving in a local setting, connected to the community around them. But we also have several emerging ministries, facets of the Moravian church that are trying to be a little bit more service oriented, who are hoping to serve a specific need or a specific population. Organizations that are a part of our church body but don't necessarily function or look like your traditional church. They don't gather in a sanctuary to worship every Sunday. They don't run Sunday school and Bible study out of their social hall or classrooms in their church building. Their ministries look a little bit different, but function as the hands and feet of Christ. And there are two of these emerging ministries that I am most familiar with and have spent the most amount of time with. So I'll mention them and then in future episodes might point you to some of the other ministries that we have as well. The first one I want to tell you about is the Trickle Bee Cafe. This is a ministry in Milwaukee, Wisconsin that was intentionally placed about I want to say 7 years ago in what's called a food desert. And Christy Melby Gibbons, who's a Moravian pastor and her husband David started this ministry in this place where there wasn't access to healthy, affordable food. And this cafe that they run is what's known as a pay what you can cafe. So if people are looking for a meal, but they might not have the financial means to get a healthy meal, that's okay. They can walk into the cafe and get a meal for free They can pay for a portion of their meal if they can. They're also invited if they're able to pay more than what a meal might cost or the suggested price so that someone coming later could receive a free meal. Lots of their food is vegan and gluten-free and very healthy, and Christy has partnered with local farms and local organizations to get locally sourced food. So that's a ministry of our church. It's a part of the Moravian Church. It's a cafe where people can join for community and fellowship and most importantly can get a healthy meal that they can afford regardless if they have the money to or not. A place where people feel welcomed and loved in a location that desperately needed such a service to be a part of. So that's the Tricklebee Cafe. I also want to tell you about one of the newest emerging ministries of our church, which is called You Belong, and this one is in Green Bay, Wisconsin. So us Wisconsinites have some very exciting things happening within our church. So You Belong started a couple of years ago. Uh, Pastor Greg Behrend and his wife Amy started this community, this ministry of the Moravian Church, specifically with the hope to serve families and people with special and unique abilities, to be more accessible to people with special needs, to be a place of service for everyone, regardless of ability or disability or physical need. That's who they want to serve. I think traditionally in your classic church setting, we have lacked and ability to reach out to folks of all abilities. So they have started this church serving families, especially offering programs of arts and crafts and activities and just a place to come and gather and be themselves and be welcomed as they are. So that is one of the newest ministries in Green Bay, Wisconsin. Both ministries, the Trickle Bee and You Belong, were very intentional on a population, a group of people that have been neglected or underserved. And they took it upon themselves to take a leap of faith to start a new ministry, a new church that doesn't really look like your classic church, but serves the needs of the people. So those are some exciting things about the Moravian Church. We also have what's called the Board of World Mission. Moravians are very mission-focused, and through the Board of World Mission, they help organize uh, mission efforts to some of our congregations and mission sites across the world in Central and South America. They have been essential to responding to natural disasters to coordinating relief efforts for hurricanes, for earthquakes. But they've also most recently been a part of the ongoing crisis in the Ukraine. When war broke out in the Ukraine last year, it was the Board of World Mission that was able to contact Moravians who were in the area to support families and refugees who were fleeing from violence to help sponsor them give them means to stay in school if they had to leave their home. It's been through the Board of World Mission that those efforts have been made. So there really are some some great ways that the church is in action beyond the classic church walls. And those are just a couple of the examples of the ministry of the Moravian Church. We are a small denomination, but I would argue that Despite our size, we are able to accomplish and to be creative to an amazing degree. To see church in new ways, to not feel limited by our size, to know that we can still do wonderful and good work that helps a lot of people. So, if that's kind of the Moravian church today, both locally and worldwide, I also want to tell you a little bit about where we come from because our history is a great point of pride for our church. We are an old church and we have a wonderful history that connects us to several other denominations that have come along the way. And also, you'll see that our history is one that was really sparked and gained its momentum through efforts of reformation, that our church finds its roots in someone's willingness to see what could be changed about our church culture, what could be improved, and someone who is willing to take those ideas and run with them and sometimes have to deal with the consequences that came with it. So we, Moravians, we trace Our roots, we consider our spiritual ancestry to be found in John Huss. He was a Catholic priest in the Czech Republic in the 1300s into the 1400s. He was a priest, he was a professor, but he had some things that he thought the church could change or do better to more completely embody the spirit and the mission of Jesus himself. A few of the things that Huss pointed out and fought for were first the idea of what's called the lay chalice. At that time in the Catholic Church, only the priests during communion were offered the cup, while the congregation just got the bread. So priests got the bread and the cup, and the congregation could only have the bread. And Huss thought that The gift of Jesus' body and blood should be for all people, and he thought the average person sitting in the pews should get access to the chalice. So that's something that he thought of in terms of where the church could grow and could change their approach. He also believed that the Bible should be translated into the native language of the people who were gathered there. This was at a time when the Bible was written in Latin, and the priest was responsible for reading the Bible and teaching and sharing the gospel with people who had gathered. At that point, people didn't have access to read the Bible on their own. And he thought it would be really important for people to be able to pick up the Bible and read it in their own language. And through his efforts they did start translating the Bible into the native language of the people so that they could be a part of their own spiritual formation, that they could seek the word of God themselves. Finally, he had an issue with the practice of indulgences in the church. This was a practice where someone would essentially pay the priest to pray on their behalf. This could be to pay the priest in order to forgive a sin that's weighing on you. It might be to pay the priest or the church, I should say, so that they will pray for a loved one of yours who has recently passed away. The priest might say that your loved one is in purgatory and needs some assistance to gain access into heaven. So the family would pay the church and then the priest would pray on their behalf to get their loved one into heaven. Huss saw this as an obvious abuse of power and didn't think the church should engage in such practices. So he began preaching about these ideas and gained quite a following, but also became quite a problem for the church at the time. And he was labeled as a heretic. He was expelled from the community. He was excommunicated by the Pope And when he was invited to come back and recant, to take back everything he had been teaching, he wouldn't do it. And even with his very life threatened, he wouldn't take back those things that he believed in. And ultimately, Huss was burned at the stake for his beliefs and labeled as a heretic to his death. But his movement had gained enough momentum, it had enough energy behind it that people called Hussites continued his message and continued his teachings. And it would be about a hundred years later that Martin Luther would come along and see some of the arguments that Huss was making and agree with them and use them for what's known as the Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther himself said he would have been a Hussite had he been around when Huss was teaching. That's one of the Moravian's greatest claim to fame is that we were, we are the first Protestant denomination, the first church that broke away from the Catholic Church to start our own movement. And from there, several other denominations have followed and they have relationship with the Moravians and our willingness to seek change and to be bold about making that change happen. But for many years after the death of John Huss, Moravians were in exile. They were fleeing from persecution. There were times when it seemed like the Moravian church was just going to fade away and wasn't going to be able to maintain its life together But a group of Moravians stumbled on the estate of a German nobleman named Zinzendorf. And he was gracious enough to let them essentially establish a community on his land. And it was together as they lived in unity with each other. And as Zinzendorf got to know them a little bit more, he became a leadership figure for them. And it was under his guidance that Moravians first experienced what we call our spiritual renewal during a time when there was conflict and arguing and the church wasn't getting along. They felt an overwhelming sense of the Holy Spirit through the sacrament of communion with one another. And it was from that moment when they realized that they were united by the love of Christ more than anything else, that it sparked this renewal of our church, that they had new energy, they had new purpose. And from this moment and through the vision of Zinzendorf, the Moravians, who were once at this point where they might not survive as a community and as a group of faith, started sending missionaries across the world. Zinzendorf is well known for not only being a great part in that early mission movement of the 1700s, but also he had great ecumenical beliefs as well. He thought churches should work together more, that we might have different practices, different customs, and sometimes different interpretations, but the Christian church should work together a lot more. And through his leadership, not only did they send missionaries across the world, but they sent members of their church to the United States. And they landed in Winston-Salem, they landed in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, and they started intentional communities there. And from those communities, they gained uh, even more momentum and they established their roots And the Moravian church continued to spread across the United States. We are still pretty heavily based on the East Coast. That is where I think you'd find most Moravians. And as you travel west, things do kind of scatter and sparse out. But um, the hold in Bethlehem and in Winston-Salem is still very strong. There are still many, many Moravian churches out there. And there are still several Moravian churches across the country Some grouped closely together and some uh, more spread out from the different missionaries and different church planters who were at work over the last 200 years. Moravians were also uh, ahead of their time in terms of the roles they thought women should play in their community. They thought women should have places or positions of leadership. They were one of the first to ordain women and allow them to preach. All the way back, uh, even during Zinzendorf's time, Anna Nitschmann was someone who had uh, a great amount of leadership in establishing a girls' school. Moravians believed that women should have access to education just the same as men. And not only that, but all people should have access to education, not just the elite and the wealthy. And through this women's school, something that was ahead of its time, we find the Moravian University that we know today. It started from that initial women's school. So finally, I would just want to wrap up this crash course in Moravian history, the Moravian Church today, with just an understanding of Moravian beliefs. We aren't a denomination that has a long list of creeds and doctrines to follow. We essentially believe in something that uh, is, is a catchphrase that other churches have in their experience as well, but it's something that we have expanded upon and, and really found a lot of clarity in. So in our church, we like to say in essentials, unity, in non-essentials liberty, and in all things love. And the way we unpack that is that the essentials, the things that are most important for us to agree on and believe together, the essentials are that God has made us, God has created us, that God has redeemed us, God has forgiven us, and God has sanctified us. God makes us holy. And we respond to those three actions from God with faith, hope, and love. We believe our Christian faith at its baseline, at its very best, should be an expression of love, hope, and faith. And everything after that is something we would call non-essential In some places, it'd be called incidentals. They are things that point to those essentials of faith, but on their own, they don't have that importance or that holiness attached to them. So some of the non-essentials, which can be kind of striking to hear for the first time, that's why we sometimes use the word incidental, because non essential can sometimes make it seem like they aren't important at all, which isn't the case. But things like the sacraments of baptism and Holy Communion, our reading and interpretation of the Bible, things like that are, in our eyes, technically non-essential, and they become essential when they point to faith, hope, and love. Because on its own, The act of Holy Communion or baptism on its own, the Bible itself, isn't essential unless it's pointing us to the love of Jesus. Because people over the course of history have interpreted the Bible in harmful and hateful ways, and we don't see that as a tool that is being very useful or very appropriate when it's being used in such a way. The Bible becomes essential to us and is obviously the source of life and hope to us because it points to Jesus. When we are interpreting the Bible to oppress, to hold people back, to establish power and control over people, that's not a proper use of the Bible. But when it points to faith, hope, and love, it becomes an essential part of who we are. And then further down the line, the kind of in all things love portion of the essentials, you would find our customs and our practices that exist in the life of the church. Certain traditions that we have, how we celebrate Christmas Eve, how we celebrate Easter morning, all of those are free to be influenced by culture and custom and the era that we live in, they are expressions of our faith, and they're very important to us, but they vary from place to place and from time to time. And we're encouraged through the essentials to celebrate what's important to us and see the differences that we have, to see the great variety in our expressions of faith, and to celebrate it, to see it as a strength that God speaks to us in different ways. The traditions that I hold dear aren't going to be the traditions that another Moravian pastor holds dear, and that's okay. Those aspects, in our eyes, aren't worth arguing about. They aren't worth getting into great disagreements or spending time trying to get a consensus based on them. We're allowed to express those elements of our faith in ways that are most important to us. Moravians are also still—it's part of our roots, but still so important today. We are also very mission-based. We have the Board of World Mission. We have a great mission heritage within our congregations. That when the opportunity arises, when there is a need present, to go and serve, to bring the Word of God—not going to to hit someone over the head with the Bible, not to convert everyone we come across and and gain followers for Jesus. But we arrive to serve and love. We arrive to listen, to gain an understanding of what the experience of the divine already is, where we are going, and then to share our faith and our stories as well, and maybe seek ways that these paths can intersect. It's not about winning souls for Jesus. It's about being a source of love and service when we seek out our mission work. We're also very communal people. Moravian communities and the congregations that we are a part of are so supportive and so loving of one another. We had intentional communities Back in the 1700s, and even though we've gone away from that practice, the idea of caring deeply for each other is still there. That is a priority of every congregation, to welcome and accept the people that we walk with, to care for them, to guide them as they need to be guided. That aspect of community, that sense of belonging is such a vital part of the life of our congregations. And finally, I'd say that we are Easter people. And many Christians, all Christians, would say that they celebrate Easter, that the empty tomb is the source of our life and of our hope. So it can sound kind of strange that Moravians are claiming to be Easter people, like We do Easter better than other churches, and that's not necessarily the case. We love a good sunrise service on Easter morning. We love our worship together for Easter, but I think our view of the good news of Easter morning, the good news of the resurrection, really defines our walk of faith. To say that good has defeated evil, to say that love is stronger than hate, to celebrate the new life that we experience through Christ. That is what our faith revolves around. So we preach the good news of the empty tomb. We find hope and love in every Sunday morning service. A lot of churches sometimes will preach A lot about sin, a lot about the devil, will offer these great faults that we have and how we're no good, dirty sinners, and at least in my experience, that is not the culture of most Moravian churches. Our worship is an opportunity to praise God, to thank God for the blessings that we have experienced It's a time to consider ways we can improve and can do more with this life that we've been given, but it's also a time to be lifted up just as we are because of that good news. Because our faith in Jesus gives us hope, gives us life, and has placed so much love in our lives. We do preach the good news of Easter each and every Sunday. That's what we mean when we say, We are Easter people. We want to lift people up. We want to celebrate each other. We want to look for the blessings this life has for us and claim them. And importantly, think of how we can share those blessings with people who need them. Where that love, where that life is needed. To speak up for those who've been silenced, to reach out to those who've been rejected, to stand beside the people who are being persecuted in our world today. So the next time you, or maybe the first time, you hear about the Moravian Church, hopefully you'll know a little bit more about who we are. You can learn about the congregation that I serve at freedommoravianchurchsite.org. We are also on Facebook, and our worship services are on YouTube if you want to search us there as well. You can learn about the Moravian Church as a whole at moravian.org. If you're curious about what we believe and how our church operates and functions, there are great materials there. There are a few statements of belief and ways we are organized, some quick resources that you can learn more about the Moravian Church. Or if you happen to be in the area of a Moravian church, if there's one nearby, I'd encourage you to go check it out on a Sunday morning to see our faith in action and to see what our Moravian church is all about. So that's all I have for this episode of The Essentials. Thank you for listening, and I will catch you next time.